I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Mary DeGrazia. Mary is a senior director in the cyber risk practice of Chrome, a division of Duff and Phelps. Over the course of a 12-year career in the computer industry, Mary has become a leader within the digital forensic community. Mary joined Kroll from Verizon Enterprises, where she served as a case lead on various network intrusion and data breach investigations. Mary is a strong believer in giving back to the forensic community and has written and released numerous programs and scripts, two of which are used in SANS training. In addition, she has presented her research at several industry conferences, published articles in eForensic Magazine, and was a technical editor for Windows Registry SE. In this episode, we discuss starting in IT, balancing work and family, self-training, the importance of the DFIR community, cross-training, using AI for detection, cloud security, giving back to the industry, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Mary, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Very well. And we were just talking before we hit record, but you, uh, you've you been pretty busy lately uh, with, with the move and some other stuff. But uh, in general, how is your day-to-day as a uh, incident responder? Because I know that's always a, a challenging tool for all of us that are, that are in the industry. It's, uh, it's a challenging aspect of it. Every day seems to be a little bit, uh, you never know what you're going to get. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that I love best about this industry is that every day I don't know what I'm going to get. And that's kind of the thing that I look forward to about getting up, grabbing my cup of coffee, heading into my office. You know, I never know if the attackers are getting back in, if things are going to be calm, what kind of clients I'm going to be dealing with. Like my day to day changes uh, so frequently. And I absolutely love that. And, you know, the industry itself changes constantly, you know, what new vulnerabilities are going to be coming out, you know, what methodologies are the attackers going to be using. Uh, I just, I love it. I think that's one of the things that I love best about my job. And you've been doing it for some time. Kind of tell us how how you really kind of got started in, you know, computer forensics and cybersecurity and incident response. Yeah, sure. So I think that my path may be a little bit different than a lot of people getting into the industry now, which I'm just amazed by. When I went to college, gosh, probably about 20 years ago, there were only really a couple of degree programs, and none of them were computer forensics at the school that I went to. Uh, So I took computer science, and From there, you know, I just kind of started out doing IT work, you know, crawling underneath desks, troubleshooting (laughs) issues, printer drivers, um, all of those type of things. And I just kind of fell into computer forensics. Um, You know, I think one of the challenges I face, and I'm sure a lot of women out there in the industry do, is I had my kids pretty young and, you know, struggled with the concept of, well, I want to be at home with my kids versus I want to build my career out, you know, and how can I balance the two things? So, 
you know, the jobs I was doing in IT for a while, I was doing contract work where I would be traveling for a little bit. But when I wasn't traveling, you know, I was at home and I was with the kids. Um, I also ran my own business for a while, you know, selling products online, which allowed me to work from home. So while I was raising my kids, I tried to work on keeping my skill set up. But I wouldn't say that I had hit my career stride, you know, 40 hours a week, um, settling in a job with a 401k plan. Um, as my kids got older, you know, I decided it was finally time for me to kind of re-enter the field, look for that 40 hours a week. And I actually found a posting on, of all places, um, Craigslist <laughs> for what was called a computer forensic associate. And I was like, what is this? I had not even really heard much about, you know, cybersecurity, computer forensics until I saw that posting in Craigslist. Um, I went for the interview and it was actually a company that was ran by a woman. Um, and I was really intrigued by that, uh, the computer forensics. So after the interview, I went home and like started to research it and find out what it was. And that was kind of my first job into computer forensics was a posting I found on Craigslist mm. <laughs> out here in Arizona. Um, and honestly, I didn't know that much about it until I took that position. And that first year for me was just amazing. Um, you know, up to that point in time, I'd done IT support. Uh, when I had my own company, I was doing like some web development, you know, working with databases, with the e-commerce platform I was using to sell my products online. And when I started in the computer forensics field, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. I found it. I love this. Um, I was just so intrigued by it. And it was just a blast right from the beginning. What, um, you know, a lot of folks, and I, I had a similar experience to you, a lot of folks that have done this for a while now, you know, we, you're right, you know, we kind of started before there was, let's say, formal trainings. I mean, SANS was starting to kind of get its feet under it under the, in those days, and and a lot of stuff was coming out of military, but there really wasn't anywhere to say, hey, I want to go learn computer forensics. There's maybe like a half dozen books out there, and <laughs> um, and some of those are still quite good today, um, you know, when you look at things like file system forensics, and um, but, you know, what you know, when you do kind of jump in, what were some of the things that you try to find out there to kind of get you self-started? Yeah. So one of the first things I did, and this is kind of funny, the first week that I was in the office, um, the woman that ran the company, she wasn't even there. She was out uh, testifying on some case and uh, the other forensic person there showed me what end case was. And I was like, what's this end case? And I just found the manual and started going through the manual. I think someone had went to training. And so they had like their training book there. So I just started going through that. And then, you know, I hopped on Amazon and started looking at the books in Amazon that were in the field. Of course, um, one of the first books I ordered and began learning from was the book from Harlan Carvey, uh, Windows Forensic Analysis, you know, and in there he had like his Red Ripper tool. And I'm like, wow, this is fantastic, you know. Um, and so the File System Forensics by Brian Carrier, uh, just all of these books that were out there on Amazon, I just started to order them and read through them and go through them, you know, and some of them were very technical. Some of them were a little bit more, you know, easy to read through kind of like fireside chat for forensics, I guess. Um, and some of them were more like reference books. 
Um, but I just started kind of down that path. And then of course I started following people on Twitter and started reading and following blogs. And to me, like the community out there in forensics has been so important to this field of people doing research, sharing that research. That's really where you kind of get the latest and the greatest because it takes a while to matriculate out to the trainings and out to the books, you know, um, and I've just found that those have all been great ways to kind of get up to speed in the industry and also to figure out what it is that kind of drives drives you. So many times, you know, I have people ask me, they're looking to get into forensics or cybersecurity. Uh, they're not sure what direction they want to go in. So I think whatever you find yourself gravitating towards in your free time is a good indicator of that. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's it kind of leads to the question now. So obviously you've grown up in the industry. Um, you have people that kind of report to you, or you've mentored, what are some of the things that you tell people now to say, Hey, here's really where you want to get started. Because almost, I, I feel like it's almost the opposite now a little bit where it's, it's almost too intimidating. Like it was, it was kind of nice when we had the constraints of options where there wasn't a lot where now it's like, dear God, where do you even start to get your feet under you? Yeah, I think, you know, so many times, and I think kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, so many people see the field and they're just not sure what direction they want to go in the field. To me, it feels like, you know, even with computers, you know, you have programming, you have databases, you have networking in, in the field of cybersecurity, there are all these different areas that you can go into pen testing, malware analysis, um, you know, incident response, forensics, host-based forensics. And a lot of people are like, ah, I don't know where to start. I don't know what it is that I want, you know, what I want to do. And what I found is, um, so one of the first employees I had come to work for me um, wanted to explore forensics and see what they enjoyed about it. You know, they heard a lot about it and were interested in it. But in their spare time, everything they did related to pen testing. <laughs> that was what they they really gravitated towards. And, you know, I was like, hey, you got to go with, you know, what your passion is, what it is that you enjoy doing. You know, if you really enjoy programming, you know, you might want to look at, you know, doing malware analysis where you can get in there and reverse engineer things. If you really like um, solving problems and troubleshooting things, I think host-based forensics is great for that. Um, like going to conferences, listening to the different talks, you know, if you're not sure in the industry where you want to go, go to a different, you know, a couple of different conferences. You know, we've got the, the DFIR Summit, which is, you know, a lot of the digital forensics and incident response. And then, you know, you have your threat, threat hunting conferences and, you know, kind of like your hacker conferences. You start going to those conferences and you find yourself being pulled into certain topics or, you know, really interested in certain areas of the field, I think can really go a long ways towards helping you figure out, you know, where you want to focus your efforts as you move into the field. One of the things that I've tried to encourage people to do too is, is cross training. You know, say if you have some folks that may know forensics, say, Hey, you got to spend a little bit of time in pen testing and vice versa. Have you found that to be kind of effective way to, and, I, and I'd say like the perfect, most well-rounded cybersecurity person, you know, people are going to graduate or gravitate towards where they want to be, but to definitely kind of get their, their sense of where maybe some of the other areas are, maybe what an attacker might be doing if they're only on defense. Yeah, and I think that is a great idea to go uh, take training and other things or even just grab a book 
and, you know, explore that to see how it is as far as cross-training. Like if cross-training isn't something that really works well within your company or, you know, everybody sometimes is so busy or, you know, oh, you have to be billable at work. And then if you go do this cross-training over here, it's going to take away from your current workload. There's still things that you can do in your free time to kind of do that cross-training. Um, I know a while ago or I think last year, I was looking at these PowerShell entries that we were seeing in our cases. And I was really curious, like, well, how are the attackers doing this? Like, I can see it on the defensive end, but what are they doing to kind of create this, to create the artifacts that I'm seeing? So I think I ordered a book off of Amazon, you know, like learn Metasploit in 24 hours or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was enough where, you know, I was able to download a VM and play around with it a little bit and kind of do some things on the pen testing side. And I was able to kind of recreate what I was seeing with the host-based forensics, which let me understand a lot more about what I was seeing, why I was seeing it that way, and helped me become a better examiner because I'm like, oh, this is what they're limited to on their side, or oh, these are all the tools that they have uh, that they can use. So I think cross-training is a great way not only to find out what er other areas you might be interested in, but also gives you a lot of perspective into you know, different ways, you know, that you can be working your cases and kind of pull you out of maybe the little box that you're stuck in every day. And you've, you've probably also seen certainly the, the growth of things from your traditional, I'm using my air quotes, my finger air quotes, but, you know, like dead box forensics to IR to now cloud. Are there things that you've seen progress within those areas that are commonalities and where do you see some of the differences? Yeah, so I remember when I first came to Kroll, you know, we use in our investigations um, carbon black. So when we, you know, hit the client site or we start an investigation, uh, one of the things we do is we push carbon black out. It's fantastic. It's like finding all of these things. And I remember thinking like, oh, my gosh, Deadbox Forensics is dead. Like, what do they need us for? You know, we've got carbon blast that does all of this detection and all these other cool things. But what I found out as we worked the investigations, it's really like this marriage between the two different technologies that makes everything stronger. Um, they still needed the dead box forensics to go back, you know, six months in time to see what was going on or to tear apart the malware or to find other things um, to help fine tune carbon black. So I think moving forward, you know, it's not going to be just like one technology, right? One way of doing things. It's really going to be using all these different tools that are coming out at our disposal to, you know, be able to protect ourselves better and to find answers. Um, I think like anything else, you know, like with the cloud, everything's the cloud now. We're finding challenges with the cloud. But I remember years ago when solid state drives came out, and that was supposed to be like a game changer for forensics. Like, oh no, what are we going to do now? Solid state drives are coming out. We're not going to be able to recover data from unallocated space. But there's still plenty, <laughs> plenty of things that keep driving the industry forward uh, as we find new artifacts that help make up for these other deficiencies. I'm also really excited to see like what AI is going to start to do in and how that's going to start to help us in this field with the amount of data that we have to work with too. Yeah. It's, it's a little, it's a little intimidating at times. Again, when you say, wow, I can start turning on all these things for uh, alerting and detection, then you're, you're quickly overwhelmed by it. Um, but I also 
I'm also curious from people that are doing a lot of the front lines IR work, you know, where do you see things like machine learning, AI, and really, I guess, coming down to automation kind of playing out in a lot of this? Yeah, so I think something, I think, so when we think about computer forensics and incident response, like patterns are really important. So let's say, for instance, I come into a company as an IR responder, like it's really hard for me to know as like a newcomer to the environment, like, hey, what is typical in your environment and what is not typical in your environment? Uh, so, for instance, you know, just to ask, uh, so when we think of something like an insider threat, uh, one of the biggest challenges with that is, you know, employees within a company need access to data to do their job. That's part of their job. But where it becomes a risk is, you know, when they get ready to leave the company, right? All of a sudden, now if they access a folder with the, you know, company uh, IP data a week before they leave, that that can be a red flag. But you know, they still might be doing their work. I think where AI can come in handy is it can pick up on patterns like, okay, you have an employee that's leaving within a month. All of a sudden now, uh, maybe typically, you know, they only copy 200 megs of data over the course of a week. All of a sudden now it's a gig. Um, You know, so AI can be used to track things within the environment, pick up on patterns and abnormalities in those patterns, whereas you know, us coming in and manually going through all that data and trying to pick up on those type of patterns would be really difficult. And, you know, I'm hoping as AI gets smarter, looking at all these log files, uh, you know, if you think about the amount of log files an environment with a thousand endpoints can generate, that's just tons of data and calling through false positives. Um, I, I really think that's where AI can come in come in to play and help us with those type of anomalies, picking them out of all that data. Yeah, I think you use the right word there is, is like help or assist. There's there's so many people say, oh, you know, again, like you said, with uh, with SSDs, or there's always these moments where a new technology comes out and it's like, it's going to be this big force disruptor and everything we know is gone. It's like, no, we just have to adapt. And a lot of this really just comes down to assisting us. But in the end of the day, there needs to be some type of examiner that needs to make that that connection. Yeah, absolutely. And something has to train the AI too. Um, you know, it, the AI, I'm not too familiar with the technology, right? But someone at some point in time <laughs> needs to give it some kind of direction. And at the end, you know, we do need eyes on that data to let us know, to weed out the false positives and to apply that human aspect to it to assist with that. I don't think it's something to be scared of. I think it's something to embrace and something that will help us do our jobs more effectively so that we can focus uh, on the things that, that really matter. You know, with that too, you know, we, again, we kind of, we said, we said the C word a couple of times. So cloud, you know, cloud certainly brings its own set of challenges. And certainly one of the things I've seen from IR where you know, it was always that difficult to go through multi-parameters, through a DMZ, get into say an email system or file share, stage an X, you know, an Xfil thing versus just popping something in Office 365 and downloading an entire account. Um, how is you, where are some of the things that you've seen with, with kind of cloud approaches that are different in how you've had to adopt or adapt different uh, methodologies to deal with it? Yeah. So when it comes to the cloud, and I have to be honest, I haven't worked a lot of cloud investigations, but, you know, it's 
a lot of it comes down to the provider, the logging. <laughs> I mean, logging is always a challenge, right? But once you start dealing with these third-party vendors, it's, you know, what contracts are in place. Sometimes it's where's the data at, you know, now it's like GDPR and everything. I really have to wonder, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of issues start to pop up on what data can even be accessed. Um, GDPR, you start mixing everything out in the cloud. Where does the data actually exist versus, you know, I might be a citizen in the U.S., but if my cloud is like in Ireland, how does that affect it if there's legal implications? So I think, you know, in addition to just like the forensics and the IR, um, now with things like GDPR and privacy issues and concerns, there's going to be like a whole new layer on top of that with like the legal ramifications and, you know, this extra layer of hoops that you have to jump through. And especially with companies that are, um, international as well. Like what data is allowed to leave? Well, if we remote in to work on the data within the cloud, can that be a U.S. citizen or does it have to be a citizen yes. that's within the same country <laughs> as the data that's on the cloud? Um, I'm just really curious to see how all of that's going to play out in the future. Definitely. And, you know, one of the things that you've kind of touched on before too was you know, kind of contributions to uh, the community, community as a whole, whether it be blogging or speaking or different things. And I know you've kind of done a couple of different things and, and particularly with what I thought was interesting, you know, was with guys at Kroll, you kind of put out Cape, um, which is a kind of a cool automated triage tool. Kind of walk us through that of why give away something um, as opposed to keeping it as something that's only your own. You know, what, what, what made you guys think of, okay, this is a better contribution than something we just, we only keep to ourselves. Yeah, I think, I think, and this is one of the things that I really love and I enjoy about Kroll is that us practitioners understand the importance of sharing, um, sharing our findings, sharing our research, moving things forward. Now, of course, you know, Kroll is a company, we want to make money. So we do have some tools internally that we use and maybe some processes that we don't share. But I feel like all of those have grown out of or you know, have been rooted in something that was available to the community for free. So like you can get to where we're at <laughs> based on what's out there. I think with Cake and, you know, we have Eric Zimmerman here at Kroll who is absolutely fantastic and awesome. You know, with Cape, you kind of get the best of both worlds. The core code of Cape is not um, open source, right? It's free, but it's not open source. But at the same time, we have the modules, which can be developed by the community, which are all open source. So kind of at the core of Cape, the core Cape code is not open source, but the ability and really where the power of Cape comes in is writing the modules and the targets to be able to process all of this data. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we like to have it free in, you know, the modules and the targets open source is that makes it very easy to, you know, pass on to your clients. Hey, if they want to use Cape and you want to have them collect some data, you can have them use Cape in order to do that. Um, you know, at Kroll, you know, and one of the ways we look to kind of, I guess, monetize Cape is that we provide training on Cape. So the, the tool is free. Uh, you know, I've done webcasts on how to use it. Eric has done webcasts on how to use it. And other people out there have done webcasts on how to use it. But, you know, we also at Kroll look to monetize that by offering our own training. So if people want to learn how to use Cape, 
um, and how to get the most out of it, you know, they can hire Cole to come teach them. But at the core, we still have released this tool that's absolutely fantastic uh, for the community to use um, however they see fit fit within their environment yeah and it's, it's kind of one of those things i've always found you know, i've been doing technology for a long time and, and cybersecurity for the last 12 15 years but you, know, you you really almost need that peer validation that community validation of what you do is you know i want to put this out there to make sure what i'm not you know kind of not i'm not taking crazy pills here this makes sense and you kind of need that you kind of need to show your cards a little bit um because somebody else might come up with a different set of research that could contradict you and if you don't you know kind of show your kimono you're you're, you're, you run into a really difficult area. Yeah. And that is one of the beauties about open source. Um, and I think that's also really cool is because you can see tools get corrected and, and fixed and changed so quickly. Um, you know, cause people out there in the community are using them. They're invested in them. If they can contribute to them, they feel that they have, some kind of say in the direction that it's going and, you know, they want to contribute and add to those tools because it's really cool to, you know, like maybe approach someone like Eric and say like, Hey, it would be really cool if Kate can do this. And he's like, Hey, yeah, you know what? That's a great idea. I'm going to roll that into the next, you know, release that I have. And a week later, that idea that you've asked for, you can see right there being pushed out into the tool, like almost immediately. Whereas, you know, some of these bigger companies, you know, that um, sell their tools, you know, they're like thousands of dollars. They have these release cycles that they stick to, you know, you might not see something for three months or for six months. And in the meantime, you have to use this total like band-aid approach to work your case until that tool, you know, is updated. Um, and I think that's really how our community grows within this industry is by sharing. And I know like a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I don't like to write. I, I don't like to blog. I kind of like to keep to myself. I don't want to be on social media. You can still contribute to the community by, you know, emailing a tool author and saying like, hey, I ran it over this data set and it didn't work. And you know, here's as much information as I can give you, or here's an NDA that you can find so you can take a look at the data and see why it's not working. Because, you know, as developers, when we're working on our tools, we have kind of like this finite data set that we work with until it gets pushed out to the real world. And all of a sudden now, two or 300 people are using it across thousands of different data sets. You know, they can find some really interesting things. And, you know, just sharing that with someone is a good way to contribute to the community without maybe, you know, doing a blog post or tweeting all the time or doing those types of things. Well, that goes to your blog post. I mean, that, that is something you have done quite a bit and, and how I, I think you've come on a lot of folks in this industry's radar by, by putting it out there, by starting a blog and kind of hanging, hanging that shingle, so to speak, and putting out your findings. What was kind of... What really kind of made you take that leap? Because it is a commitment for sure. Uh, but what really, really pushed you to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is something what I'm going to put out there. Yeah. So I think, so a while back I ran my own company and I started doing cell phone forensics and I just found, you know, it seemed like with computer forensics, I could, or host-based forensics, you know, if I ran into a problem, I could Google it and I would run into some research and I would find something on it. But with the cell phone forensics, and this was probably, you know, six, seven years ago, um, 
I would run into an issue and I would Google it and there would be like nothing, <laughs> maybe like one hit out there. And I'm like, well, you know what? Um, I found this issue or I figured out how to do something. I'm going to go ahead and share that. So if somebody else runs into the same issue, they'll be able to see what the solution is. Um, so that kind of made me take that, that jump, you know, and I also really looked up to people like Harlan Carvey and um, Corey Harrell, other people out there that were sharing their research and what they were doing. And I wanted to contribute and I wanted to do that. Um, I also found that it, it, it was a way for me to keep meticulous notes on what I was doing so that later, I mean, I go back and I reference my own blog, my own blog posts because, you know, I can only remember so much and it's a great way for me just to kind of like catalog it and have it there and preserved so that I can go back and take a look at it and remember all that research and time I put into it, uh, you know, without having to, um, you know, scrounge through my computer and look for all of my notes. Yeah. I, I find it's funny. You know, I started and I got to see folks like Harlan Carvey and, and both Corey's on, uh, uh, forensic focus and other forms, but I, it's still funny every now and then. I'm like, there was some Gmail thing I did about five years ago. And I'll, have to, I'll go, re- it's like a great cat. It says, I love the internet for not forgetting. Um, but what I actually remember one of the tools that, that I really thought was cool that, that you came out with and it's on your GitHub, but the, the SQL light parsers, because that's, you know, trying to find deleted records and, and, SQL databases or any databases um, are a challenge, but I thought that was a, a very cool contribution. But, I, you know, most of those come with some problem that you were trying to solve first before you say, you know, I'm just going to write a tool that does that. What was the problem you were trying to solve at that point? Yeah, so this was with like cell phone forensics. And gosh, that was, wow, that was so long ago. I have to try and remember <laughs> what the original problem was. So I remember at that time, working cell phone cases and having to pull out. And I mean, with cell phones, so much of that information is stored in SQLite databases. And, you know, the data is in there and there were not, um, I don't even know if there were any free tools at that point in time that would dump out, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, this data from the SQLite databases. So I spent like, gosh, I'm going to say like a week or two going through all that documentation there was a blog post also by, um, gosh, the guy that does all the Linux um, blogging. I can't remember his blog right now, but I have it referenced on my blog post. Linux sleuth or sleuthing Linux, <laughs> something right. along those lines. Yeah, he had a great write-up on it too. And I was like, you know, um, we've got all these paid tools that will do it, but it would be really nice if we had something out there for free and and, you know, my, my tool isn't pretty. It doesn't <laughs> it just kind of dumps out all the data, but, you know, hey, it's free. It works. And it's the data that's in the, the SQLite database. Um, but, yeah, I think at that point in time, I was working a case that had a ton of text messages that had been deleted that were in an SQLite database. And I could see them in there and I wanted to get them out so that I could work my case. And, you know, developing that tool helped me to do it without shelling out a couple thousand dollars for a for pay tool, which when you have your own business and you're trying to get things running and off the ground can actually be a pretty big chunk of money. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny. Sometimes the, uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of the better tools start out that way. It's like, you know, I've got to kind of develop my own. <laughs> um, but you know, you've also done some contributions as far as teaching and, and working with SANS. How did, 
how did that come about as well? Because that's in itself again kind of a, a daunting task where it's going to take some of your time. Yeah. So when I had my own business, I realized very quickly that I kind of had to get out of my comfort zone and start doing networking. And I think um, I'm probably similar to a lot of people in the computer industry. I'm kind of at home, you know, at home, comfortable, like behind my computer screens in my little world. Not that I don't like to socialize, but going out and networking and building relationships can be pretty pretty daunting um, to be that social can be kind of draining on me after a while. Um, So I realized though that in order to build my business, um, one of the best ways to do it was to start speaking to um, local like chapters, like out here, there was um, like accounting groups that, that do fraud work and they need computer forensic examiners to help with that. So um, I met someone and they were able to kind of put me in, in touch with their group and they have, you know, like their quarterly meeting. So I was able to come out and do a presentation for them and kind of teach them about like, hey, this is what computer forensics is. Uh, this is what it says. And I found that I really enjoyed kind of teaching people about our industry, what it does. I love what we do. And I think people are fascinated by it because they, what they see out, you know, in like CSI, they kind of see like um, all of these drama shows on TV that portray what we do as really exciting. Not that it isn't, but I think we all kind of know it tends to get exaggerated a little bit (laughs) by the media. I I really want Um, them to do like a full episode of how to build pivot tables in Excel. And this is how you, you take an Excel spreadsheet and data mine all of your data in it by yeah. copying, pasting for two hours. Like, doesn't get more exciting <laughs> all the than exciting that. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all the exciting stuff that we really do, you know. Um, but I found that I really enjoyed um, speaking with people and teaching and working and kind of, you know, now that I'm, I was able to transition that into to speaking at industry conferences. And then I started doing workshops um, putting together, you know, research I'd done into some labs and just found that I really enjoyed teaching and sharing. And I think that also probably comes back to why I like the blog is that I really, I don't know what it is about me, but I have like this drive inside of me that likes to share what I'm finding and, and enjoys teaching. And on the same end, like receiving that information back uh, from other people as well. And then, of course, that kind of led me down the path now where um, I'm teaching with SANS, which is really cool that I get the opportunity to go out and teach forensics um, in the field as well. And and SANS has always been really great about keeping up on the leading edge, um, sharing, you know, encouraging the open source tools as well. So I feel like that's been a really good fit for me. Yeah, I always found it was interesting, and uh, it was, gosh, it was many years ago sitting in one of Rob Lee's classes, and I probably told the story on the podcast a number of times, but, you know, when he was going through something, somebody had a question, he goes, yeah, I don't know, let's figure that out, and it was this, you know, we, we were deconstructing something during a lunch break or during the class, you know, uh, that was happening at that moment that you were, you're just not going to get somewhere else. So I love that, that ability, but it also showed, you know, particularly somebody like Rob Lee who just says, I don't know, but let's figure it out, as opposed to taking it personally, because it was, uh, you know, he didn't have any ego about it. And I certainly find that with a lot yeah, of the science teachers. The, you know? That's probably one of the things. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always really hesitant to like label myself like an expert in the field or, you know, because it's like, there are so many things out there that every case, like I am learning something new. Um, you know, you're, you're never going to know it all. It's just, there's just too much out there, right? You've got, and I kind of mentioned this before, like you have networking, you have malware, you have uh, databases, um, you know, in this field, I think sometimes people feel like they're getting pulled so many directions. And a lot of times, you know, I encourage people like, you know, don't feel like you have to know everything, you know, know who it is that you need to reach out to or what book you might need to go pull off of your shelf. Or a lot of times it is like, you know what, I don't know, I'm going to have to go chase this down and figure it out. And I think, you know, that's one of the the things that can keep you going in this industry is to realize like, Hey, I don't know it all. And that's cool because that's going to give me an opportunity to keep learning throughout my career. Definitely. And you know, what are some of the things now that you kind of look at to say, maybe an area of focus, maybe something to say, this is, this is something where I have to kind of dig into. You know, there are a couple things. It's funny. I keep this little one note of, of things. I'm like, I need to go back. I need to go back and understand this more. I need to go back and learn this more when I'm working an exam. But like one of the things I've been telling myself for like the last years, year or two is like, I really need to learn more PowerShell. <laughs> I need to, to figure out this PowerShell and like the pen testing with Metasploit. Like I had so much fun, you know, that weekend or two where I was working with that. Like, so I have on my radar, like, oh, I want to go take some pen testing classes and, and I want to learn this and like the Metasploit and the PowerShell. Um, so there's always something out there that seems that is pulling my direction, like, ah, like 10 other things I want to learn. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, you know, like uh, spinning a, a little dial or something to figure out what direction I'm going to go next. Well, with some of this too, I'm imagining you have a decent amount of time that you have to stay maybe off the keyboard doing the hands-on forensic work where it comes down to management. Now that, you know, kind of, again, you, you come up in the industry, you find yourself with, uh, with, with additional tasks to do, so to speak. What are some of those types of things and how do you kind of balance it so you can stay sharp with what you need to know, but then make sure the, uh, the lights stay on in your respective business? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think I've been very fortunate in the, the people that I have had come work for me, um, know what they're doing. <laughs> so on a day to day, it's great that with my employees, I know that, you know, I can pretty much uh, give them directions and they're off and running. But at the same time, they know that if they ever run into, into any issues or have any questions that they can, they can come and ask me. But, you know, when it comes to kind of like my day to day in working, I always like, I kind of say, like, I like to kind of lead from the ground. Like I love to be um, not only managing an investigation, but also involved with the analysis at the same time. So leading the investigation, leading uh, the people that I'm working with, but at the same time doing the analysis. Um, the other part of my time is kind of split between uh, going out and speaking at conferences, being on panels. So it's kind of, I guess, like the, biz the biz business development side of things, right? I'm out there kind of um, showcasing, showcasing coal, um, what we do, uh, but they also tend to be, you know, like technical conferences. So I still get to be involved that way. You know, another part of my job, of course, is being on the phone with clients, doing scoping, figuring out, you know, the size of the engagement, the budget that's going to be involved. Um, 
once again, one, one of the things that I do like about Kroll is that there is this flexibility where I can say, hey, you know, I still want to be involved technically. I still want to be doing analysis on cases. That's what I love doing. Whereas some other people within the company, they like to do the business development more. They like to do the scoping calls more. So they take on more of those type of tasks. Um, so I think that here, I've, I feel like I've gotten a really good balance that allows me to be both technically involved and to also kind of grow out my managing skills and kind of, you know, keep on going up that ladder, if you will, as far as taking on more responsibilities in other areas of the company. No, you know, like you said, with, with picking up books and learning the forensic aspects, was there anything that you've relied on or blogs or hints that, that are people that are coming up in the management track that you would say, you know, here's something you need to check out, whether it's a specific methodology of management or just something that helps you figure that out as well? You know, I think, I think people, I would say, are a good resource for that. Um, you know, there are certain people that I've looked up to as I've kind of grown through my career and I've used them as like, Hey, I really like the way that this particular person manages. And I really want to kind of mimic that and kind of look to people to mentor, um, for those types of things, right? Who is it that I look up to and what do I like about their management style and how do I like how they're doing things? And then of course, on the flip side, you know, maybe there have been some people that I, I have worked with where I'm like, you know, I didn't really like how this particular manager was, or, you know, maybe how they made me feel or how they approached this particular problem. So I think for me personally, you know, I try to pick out role models and, you know, to the best of my abilities, kind of mimic and follow what they've done and also reach out to them for guidance. You know, like when I first became a manager, I was like, Hey, is there like some training I get to go to that like teaches me how to become a manager. And it was like, Oh yeah, you know, there's like some WebExes online you could check out. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be managing people. I don't know what I'm doing. And um, <laughs> that's just kind of where, you know, I reached out, you know, communicated, I reached out to people that I looked up to, to talk to them, you know, about issues as they came up and to get guidance and to kind of go through that whole process. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's one of those that I find it very interesting, particularly in the, the consulting uh, field, is that you just kind of get dumped in the deep end a little bit when it comes to management. Um, and there's not always a, you know, and it's nobody's fault. It's just you kind of grow up and all of a sudden you, you become technical and then they say, hey, do you need some more people? And all of a sudden you find yourself managing people. Yeah, it's not unlike having kids, I think. <laughs> <laughs> there's no right time. You just got to do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, okay, I get these parenting books and I, uh, you know, I remember what it is that my parents did while I was growing up that I really enjoyed. But then, of course, you remember the things that they they did that you didn't. And then you realize as a parent, you're doing those same things. But now, you know, the reasoning behind them, like, oh, okay, this is why I'm doing this. And this is why my parents did this. I kind of feel like there's a lot of similarities between the two. It's like, yeah, you just got to get your, your feet wet and jump in and do it and be forgiving of yourself. You know, if you make some mistakes here and there, um, it's okay. You know? Yeah. It's, it's literally, it's the only way to learn is by doing it. And, and if you're, if you're not failing, you're not learning. Exactly. And I think, you know, at the core, we we're all human and everybody makes mistakes. And I think that's, you know, especially when you talk about a field like computer forensics or cybersecurity, unfortunately, 
sometimes when a mistake is made, it can have really big ramifications on a case. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we just have to take a deep breath and remember, you know what, we're all human. Everybody makes mistakes, you know, for the most part, it's not usually like maliciously done or, you know, done on purpose. So let's move on. Let's see, you know, what we need to do now. And we just all grow together as a team from that after it happens. Oh, great. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Where can uh, people find you online? So they can find me on my blog, another forensics blog. Um, Also with my email, my Twitter handle, um, let's see, at Mary DeGrazia, uh, AZ, uh, Arizona Forensics at gmail.com. I don't know if you put up a link with all that information, but I would be happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm out there. I'm on Twitter. You know, just Google my name, Mary DeGrazia. You'll you'll find me. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're hard to miss online for sure. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time today and I greatly enjoyed the conversation. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.